God, I thank you that uh, you have given us your word. We're not left alone to our own devices, wondering who you are and what you're about and what you're up to on planet Earth. But we have the Bible, and the Bible speaks to us, and it's recorded for us both historical acts as well as future promises and even present realities when it comes to our spiritual lives. And so, God, I pray that as we tackle a pretty difficult subject today, this issue of truth and untruth, deception and what have you in our, in our, in our culture, I, I pray, God, that your word, as always, would rightly instruct us and give us the tools that we need to live life this side of heaven in a way that's pleasing to you. And so we pray these things only and always in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, Amen. Well, uh, one of the things that just about every one of us here this morning uh, are familiar with is the capacity that you and I each have to be deceived even when we're not looking for it. We all have the capacity to be deceived. And whether you realize it or not, I I think you probably do realize that you experience this in both small ways and maybe even unfortunately large ways in your life almost every day. And so let me just ask a few questions of you. Maybe pretend you and I are having a cup of coffee, just you and I, and and, and I ask you these questions. Have you ever gone the wrong way down a one-way street? Let's see a hand raise. you ever gone a wrong way? Yeah, some of us have. Have you ever gone into the wrong bathroom? Let's see a hand raise on that one. I I was in Driggs, Idaho on a study break, and I'm always terrified of going into the wrong bathroom because it happened to me once like 10 years ago. And so I was walking into the bathroom, and I always, you know, double-check, you know, this, not this. And so I was walking into the bathroom, and it was this, and uh, this lady walks out right as I'm walking in. And, and it was my waitress in this little small town restaurant. And I looked at her and she looked at me and said, I work here. Get over it. Anyways, uh, and, and some of us have just walked into the wrong bathroom. Um, have, have you ever bought a guaranteed to work item and found that it didn't work like it said it would? Has that ever happened to you? Uh, many of us have. Have you ever confused the names of your own kids? Have you ever done that? I, I, I've done that. You know, it's like uh, Abby, Hannah, Paul. Well, as long as I don't call Paul a girl's name, he's okay with it. Have, uh, have you ever hired somebody, say for your business or for maybe your home, who said that they were going to do this or that and didn't? Has that ever happened to you? I mean, we could go on and on this morning. Uh, dozens of scenarios that you and I experience almost every day that show us our propensity to be deceived, either deceived by our own senses, like walking into the wrong bathroom, or deceived by the world around us, or deceived by others in our lives. I mean, it's part and parcel of living in a fallen world, this capacity we have to be deceived. And the reason that that's so important that you and I grab onto this this morning is because the Bible talks about the fact that on a spiritual level and a mental level, it's also very possible to be deceived. We call it spiritual deception. Spiritual deception. And that we can be duped into believing things and then even following certain ways that God says aren't really right for us, but they sure seem like they're right at the time. And before we know it, we've been deceived. If you've been with us for the last few months here at Scottsdale Bible, you know that we are about, oh, a third, two-thirds of the way through the book of Second Peter. We're studying the book of Second Peter the spring and summer here, at least halfway through the summer here at our church. And if you've been with us, you know that Peter's about to die, and so we've entitled this series, um, Eight Challenges from a Man About to Die. God told him he was going to die, and Peter's challenging us with no less than eight key things that he wants us to know before he's about to go to heaven. And if you were with us in May and 
in June, you know that as we made our way through chapter 1, we saw some pretty awesome topics that Peter guided us through. Things like God's movement in our lives, God's sufficiency in our lives, the love that we should have for each other. Peter even talked to us about how we can die well, like when it's our time, how we can face it with courage. And then he even talked to us about um, how we can have a rock-solid faith. How we can trust God in the midst of everything and anything. Like really important, life-altering topics we looked at in chapter 1. And as we begin to now turn the page into chapter 2 of Peter's final level here, he turns up the heat and he guides us into a very, very difficult topic. And that's how to recognize false teaching, spiritual deception that can occur both in our culture and even inside of our church. And i got to let you know, folks, after immersing myself in the second chapter of Second Peter this past week, I realized once again why many pastors don't like to preach out of Second Peter. I realized why you don't hear too many sermons out of Second Peter, and it's because of the chapter that we're going to look at today. I mean, chapter 1 is a breeze filled with all kinds of positive and and uplifting encouragements. But as soon as you get to chapter 2, the chapter we're going to look at in just a minute, the entire tone changes. I mean, it's hard-hitting. It's filled with harsh judgment and biting words and difficult concepts to get our heads and hearts around. In other words, it's not very flowery or positive. It's not some feel-good, make-you-want-to-sing kind of chapter. It's more of a, whoa, this is heavy and very sobering kind of chapter. And so let's read it. That's what I want us to do first. I want us to read the entire chapter. And, uh, and the reason I want to do that is because I think it would be a total shame if you or I got to the end of a study of Second Peter and didn't read the entire text. Amen? Like, would that be wimpy or what? So we're not going to do that. We're going to read it. We're going to be men and women of our faith. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. You can look up here on the screen. If you did bring a Bible, go to the book of Second Peter, chapter 2. We're going to park there for the rest of our time this morning. And as I read it, just see if you can try to follow his flow of thought because it's, it's, it's rather difficult. Ready for this? He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if He rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. 
They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. But he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened. The dog returns to its vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Wow, I told you it was a difficult chapter, didn't I? Imagine me on Tuesday of this week reading this chapter again and going, Lord, where do we go with this? And I believe the Lord has given me something. And so in our time remaining, I want to do two very critical things. I want to give you what I believe is the main point right up front here. And then I want to show you what I believe is the life-giving flow that this passage gives us in discerning truth from error. So here's the main point. It's not very complicated. It's challenge number six as we make our way through Peter's eight challenges given to us in this book. And it's simply this, that he's challenging us to be a student of false teachers. I think if you had to say in a nutshell what Peter is saying to you and me in chapter 2 here is just simply to be a student of false teachers. In other words, be the kind of followers of Jesus who are responsibly discerning. Always having your spiritual antennas up when it comes to truth versus untruth in the world and culture that you live in. He's saying don't just coast in your spiritual and mental lives accepting everything that you hear on Oprah or CNN or read about in the New York Times or hear about at work or school or even what is said at church or in Bible study. But he's saying be discerning, be a student of truth and even untruth when it comes to what you believe and what you act on. And folks, I don't think Peter is implying that we should be overly paranoid or defensive as some Christians are known to be when it comes to truth, but simply to be on guard in a good way, always asking the right right questions and then filtering the answers through the grid that Peter provides here. And some of you are saying right now, well, what grid is he providing? Good question. As far as I can tell, there are four things that Peter shares here, four things that we can look for in false teachers who teach false things that kind of build one upon another. It's a progression he gives us here that will more than get us started in being good students of false teachers. Four things that Peter gives us here that are true about those who preach and teach untrue things. Four things that he gives us that will help us discern truth from error in others as they say things to us. And I'm going to give them to you right up front here, and then we're going to briefly walk 
through each one. So look up here on the screen. Give me a click here, Leah. This is it. And that is that people who teach false things begin by believing and saying incorrect things, right? That's the first step. In other words, they teach what is not true. We'll parse that out in a minute. But notice that this then leads to them feeling and acting in wrong ways. In other words, they display emotions and actions that are not good, which flow from their incorrect belief systems, which obviously then leads to the third step. They lead others down the wrong path. In other words, they have a negative influence on others. They lead them likewise into incorrect areas of believing and acting and feeling. And this eventually results in them and others becoming spiritual casualties. In other words, their spiritual lives are affected and a lot more affected than the minor deceptions that you and I experience on a day-in and day-out level, like when we go into the wrong bathroom or go down a one-way street the wrong way. No, this is a big deception as their spiritual lives are negatively affected for months, years, if not for all eternity. Four ways that you can be a student of false teaching. Four things to look for. Look for incorrect teachings that lead to wrong behaviors and actions that lead others down a not-so-good path that eventually caused them to become spiritual casualties who don't walk with God in any meaningful way. That's the progression that Peter lays out here for us in chapter 2. And so let's break this down and take a closer look at each step. This will be helpful for you. And notice that it begins with discerning that someone is believing and or saying incorrect things. In other words, the errant person believes and says incorrect things. Peter could not be more clear on this over and over again. As he deals with false teachers in this chapter, he communicates that it all begins with their faulty belief structure. And so check this out, folks. This week as I was studying Second Peter here, kind of immersing myself in the text, at one point I got so frustrated in how to communicate this to all of you that I walked away from my computer, I put all the commentaries down, and I went over to my coffee table in my home office, and I pulled out my yellow legal pad, which those who know me know that now we're getting somewhere, and I just took an open Bible and my yellow legal pad, and I read chapter 2, and get this, I wrote down every descriptor of the false teachers that are in chapter 2 here. I just thought, let's just add it all up. How many descriptions is he giving us here? Because it's so detailed. And when I got done with this list, I looked at this list, and I counted, get this, over 40 different descriptions in 22 different verses that Peter gives us here of false teachers. 40 different descriptions, and there might even be more, depending on how you part it out. And then it hit me as I looked at this list, that each and every one of them falls neatly into one of three broad categories. You ready for this? It either describes the faulty belief structures of these false teachers, or it describes the wrong actions and feelings that flowed out of their faulty belief structures. We'll get to that in just a minute. Or it describes the results that these false teachers had on others and eventually themselves. And so let me show you what I found. Look up here on the screen and you'll see strung together all the statements that Peter makes in chapter 2 about these faulty teachers' faulty belief structures. 
He says that these people are all about destructive heresies there in verse 1. He says that the way of truth is blasphemed in verse 2. He says that they exploit with false words in verse 3, that they blaspheme again there in verse 10. He says they're ignorant in verse 12, that they speak loud boasts of folly in verse 18. And then he caps it off by saying that in their words and teaching, they promise you freedom. Seven descriptions, don't miss this, that all have to do with this idea of people believing and saying incorrect things, things that are not in line with God's already declared truth in His Word. And what you don't want to miss as well, folks, about what Peter is saying here is that he's insinuating, if not overtly saying, that many, many times this is going to arise from within the church. Does that not blow you away? Within the church. In other words, it's not just some wacko PBS special that you're going to watch or some renegade professor at a university that you're going to read about that has the capacity to lead others astray. But churches themselves can fall prey to false teachers. He's saying you need to be really careful. And what hit me even more is that Peter never really tells us exactly what it is these false teachers taught here in chapter 2. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he goes into all this lengthy description about their false beliefs, but he never comes right out and says what it is they were actually teaching. You and I got to wrestle with why that is. I mean, it drives commentators nuts, Bible experts nuts, that, that Peter didn't tell us this. In fact, many of the commentaries are filled with all of these arguments and conjectures as to what this false teaching might have been. Some argue that it was an early form of second century Gnosticism that had crept into the church. Others argue, no, it was a a, a latent form of of Greek Epicurean philosophy that had crept into the church. While others say, no, it's more of an aberrant Christology, an errant view of, of who Christ is that has crept into the church. No one knows. I mean, Peter never really tells us what it is that he's dealing with in these false teachers. And folks, listen close. I think that just might be the point. That Peter intentionally did not mention a specific false teaching because then we'd all get focused in some myopic way on a narrow band of truth or untruth. But he wants us to see that no matter what brand of false teaching infiltrates the church or culture, that we can weed it out by simply asking ourselves, is it or is it not in line with the already declared truth of God in His Word? And so look up here on the screen. Give me another click here, guys. For each of these four things that we can look for in false teachers or bring false teaching, I'm going to give you a very positive challenge in the form of one word, something that you can do very positive in your life to recognize and even combat the influence of these four areas. And so under this first area of those who say and believe incorrect things, you can combat this by simply being a man or woman of the Word. I think that's what it's all about. That when you confront anything in culture or in Bible study or even from me in the pulpit, and you say, I wonder if that's really true. I wonder if I'm being duped here or not. What do you do? You open up the book and you look at it and you say, I wonder if God's already said something on this or not. In other words, it hit me this week that when it comes to life, and maybe you've heard this before, God says it's an open book test, right? I mean, he says there's no closed book test. You don't have to be left wondering and guessing. He says open the book, and as long as you got the book open, there's a really good chance you're going to pass the test. 
there's a really good chance you're not going to fall into spiritual deception because you're going, hey, I know this book. That's not what it says. Here's what it says. Let's talk about that. You know, one of the great blessings that we have at Scottsdale Bible Church, and it's one of the reasons I came here. I came here for multiple reasons, but one of them is that this church is tied, as many of you know, informally to a great seminary that was sprung out of this church called Phoenix Seminary now. And Daryl, who's our pastor emeritus, is the president of the seminary. And as a result of the informal ties we have to the seminary, we got some amazing teachers who volunteer to teach us the Word of God on a regular basis. We call them enrichment classes. And we have Dr. Wayne Grudem and Dr. Fred Shea and Dr. Paul Wagner, who, who all teach, volunteer their time to teach us the Word of God. And many of you are in one of their enrichment classes or many of the other enrichment classes we have that do nothing but help us understand the Word on a deeper level. And I just got to tell you, we're majorly blessed to have that. I mean, so few churches have that opportunity to have such rich biblical scholarship in their church. But it hit me this week that, that probably even more so, to Scottsdale Bible Church's credit, and tell me this isn't true, is that we are also blessed with plenty of lay people in this church, I mean, people who have regular day jobs, who also have spent an immense amount of time learning and digesting the Word of God. No one is shaking her head yes. It's true. I mean, that blows me away about this church. We got a guy who teaches an enrichment class, I think at the 11.15 hour, who's a lawyer, you guys know his name, John Politan. And I'm telling you, that I put that guy up against anybody in his knowledge of scriptural truth. And he's a lawyer. He's got a day job. He's out doing all these other things. What's he doing in the evenings or in his spare time? He's going back and getting an advanced degree in the Bible. Or I mean with a guy on Friday mornings named Jeff. He's a doctor in this community. Again, very, very busy. Got two beautiful young girls and a wife and a family. And I am so impressed with the amount of Bible knowledge this guy has. You don't even know him because his main contribution to this church is that he leads a small Bible study in his community over there in McDowell Mountain Ranch. And they're going deep in books like Daniel and Matthew and other books. It's just amazing to hear his understanding of the Word of God. When I was in London, Ontario, the worship pastor that I hired there had only a high school diploma to his degree. And the reason that I hired him is because this guy could blow most people away when it came to his knowledge of the Bible. He had spent all of his time after high school reading Puritan theology in the Bible. And the guy just, he knew this book backward and forward. And you know what those three people have in common? My friend Jeff, John Politan, and my friend in London, Ontario? None of them have fallen into spiritual deception. None of them have been duped. By Oprah, CNN, the New York Times, any other pastor, none of them have ever been duped on a spiritual level. They know the Word. And here's the good news. You can too. I mean, that's one of our number one callings for you and I, is just simply to know this book, read it on a daily level, study it when you don't understand it, call up a buddy who knows more of the Bible than you do and say, hey, I don't get it. I do that, by the way. I do that a lot with people because I want to learn from others. Before you know it, you'll be on guard against what others say that are incorrect because you know the Word of God. Now, believe it or not, we're just getting started. Uh, there's a second thing that we can discern what others teach and, and say to see if what they are believing is accurate or not, and that is to look at the outcome of their belief systems in their lives. In other words, look at the behaviors and the consequent feelings that flow from their beliefs and ask yourself this question. Are these kind of behaviors and feelings that I'm seeing of a person who follows God and loves others? Or is there just something not right about this person's actions and emotional makeup that flow from his or her beliefs. 
Believe it or not, folks, though this sounds like a brutal test, Peter was really big on this test for truth, and he actually gives more attention to this test than to any of the other four, the other three that he mentions. And so again, going back to our list of descriptors that I mentioned earlier, let's string together what Peter tells us about those who believe incorrect things and what this does to their actions and their feelings. Okay, look up here on the screen. He says that they have lots of sensuality. And that's actually a sexual term. It's a loss of sexual morals being talked about there, loss of self-control in their lives. He says they have lots of greed in their lives, verse 3. That's simply putting more value on something than God does, and hence it causes you to cling to that and be greedy. It says that they have defiling passion in verse 10. They despise authority in verse 10. They are bold and willful. It says they don't tremble. They don't have any fear of others. They're irrational creatures of instinct, kind of just going with their, their base emotions when it comes to their lives. They revel in the daytime and they revel in their deceptions. Their eyes are full of adultery. Again, another sexual overtone. They have an insatiable desire for sin, it says there in verse 14. They entice unsteady souls. Their hearts are trained in greed. Greed is mentioned there a second time. They're enticed by sensual passions of the flesh. They're entangled, he says, in the defilements of the world. And so lots of actions and outcomes that that give them away. Don't miss this. Some of them overtly sexual. Some of them relational in nature, how they treat others. Some of them having to do with money. Others having to do with self-control. You get the picture. It's exactly what Jesus was getting at when He said in Matthew chapter 7 that you're going to recognize them by their fruits. Right? You're going to know them by their fruits. And the only caution that I would give you and I here that we need to be careful with is that this doesn't mean that just because a teacher or a leader or a fellow Christian struggles with morality in their lives, or even if they fall big time, that that what he or she is saying or teaching is incorrect. I mean, don't believe that that's what Peter is saying here. I mean, because we all know people who have fallen morally in their lives, and yet they still believe what God's Word says and what they teach is true. What Peter is saying, don't miss this, is that if someone begins to believe incorrect things, that this will eventually have some affect on their behavior and their feelings. And so feelings and behaviors, he's saying, can be a signal of false teaching. And so the way it's supposed to work is that if you see something in someone that seems questionable on a moral, character, feeling, behavioral level, you might want to say, hmm, I wonder if their belief structure has influenced that, and I wonder if maybe something they're teaching is not correct. I believe that's how Peter is saying this is to work. And just like before where I gave you a very positive thing that we can personally do to make sure that we don't fall into this ourselves as well as be able to have something to combat this in our lives, here's the character trait that you and I can apply to make sure that our beliefs lead to feeling and acting in the right ways. You ready for this? And that's the character trait of obedience. The character trait of obedience. And there's only going to be four words I ask you to cling to today. Four things you've got to remember to remember this sermon. First one is the Word, the Bible. Second one is obedience. You know, that word obedience, I've said this before, is really an incredibly archaic term outside of the church, isn't it? I mean, I became a Christian in 1981, and I can remember, like, maybe 1982, all of a sudden, a pastor using this word obedience in a sermon, and I thought, obedience? Like, what a foreign word. I thought my parents, even my parents, and growing up in the 60s, didn't use that word. 
I didn't say, Jamie, you're not obeying me. I mean, where's that, what's that word about? And so this word obedience is really hard sometimes for us to palate as Christians because we sit there and go, whoa, you know, where's that thing coming from? And yet if you can get your head and heart around this idea of obedience, I've got to tell you something right now. This word can become such a good friend to you because all it simply means is doing what God has said for you to do. That's all it means. And unless you think it's not biblical, look at what Jesus said in John chapter 14. I mean, he couldn't have been more clear. He said, if anybody loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so isn't that so cool? Jesus made it so simple. He simply said that if you love me, if you're in relationship with me, you're going to by and large do what I say. You're going to have a lifestyle commensurate with what you believe. I mean, aren't you sick and tired of people calling Christians hypocrites? Aren't you? I am. I mean, everywhere I turn, if I say I'm a Christian, I'm on a plane, hey, I'm a Christian. I know Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. And I love to give the answer, you know, that, that, you know, hey, the church is not full of hypocrites. We got room for one more, you know, and things like that. You know, I mean, I, I, I give all those answers. But the reality is, is that I do long for the day where the church is filled, don't you, with like people who are at least somewhat obedient to God, who have a faithfulness that though not perfect, because none of us are perfect, that's why we still need forgiveness. But even when we're not perfect, we own it, we admit it, we confess it, and we say, God, forgive me. And we say to people around us, you know what, I messed up, forgive me, I'm not perfect, but I'm humble, and I want to receive more righteousness from God, and I want to become on the path, or get on the path that He wants me to be on. Wouldn't you long for that, like a church like that? i got to tell you, if a church like that, if a church became that obedient to God, guess what? We'd stand out. And not just among the world, but we'd stand out even among other Christians. Isn't that sad? Because one of the things that Americans, or that people have shown about American Christians is that really statistically we're very similar to the world around us. I don't have time to give you all the statistics today, but I can. George Barna has shown this in his, in his books that basically, Ron Sider has shown this too, that, that, that basically Christians have a behavior that in many, many ways, not always, but in many ways, is very similar to the world around us. Our divorce rates are very similar. Um, the struggles that we have with sin, whether it be pornography or other things, are very similar. In other words, reality is, is that when people look at us, they don't see very different lives sometimes than those in the world. And that's a shame. Because I'm not talking about being legalistic. I'm just going to be talking about the fact that when they look at us, they should see a difference. They should be led to a higher level of morality because we follow God And they should at the very least say, whoa, what is it about your life that causes you to be that way? And obedience will also cause you to not be the kind of Christian, in the end of the day, who is duped by false teaching. Because you're living a lifestyle commensurate with what you believe, and it's also going to help you discern truth and error in your life. And so to recap, where we've come so far, folks, you discern false teaching by using the Word to flush out incorrect belief systems. You get that, right? And then you take a hard look at emotions and behaviors that flow out of what one teaches, and you obey God. And yet we're not done there yet. More quickly, two more things that Peter adds to this flow here. And the third thing is to look at whether or not it leads others down the wrong path. This is a great acid test for false teachers. Does it lead others down the wrong path? 
And so again, look at the lengthy list of descriptors that Peter gives of those who teach false things. We notice him saying that many will follow their sensuality, that their greed will exploit you there in verse 3, that they entice unsteady souls in verse 14, that they entice those who are barely escaping from those who live in error, which obviously is referring to new believers. And so it's clear that one of the hallmarks of false teachers is that they're going to have a negative influence on those around them, even to those who are already following Jesus Christ. And we're talking about new believers or even veteran believers that might not be all that steady and solid in their faith. And I don't know if you caught it or not, folks, but Peter makes it clear that this can actually happen to many. Did you see that there in verse 2? It can happen to many He says many will follow, which to me means that this kind of false teaching can happen to just about anyone. So be careful. Be careful of the influence you receive both in culture and at times even from inside the church from what Marshall Shelley calls well-intentioned dragons. Because you see, some people aren't out to dupe you. They're not out to lead you down a road of deception. They just don't know any better. But they're going to lead you that way anyways if you're not careful. I remember one of my first experiences with this was as a, as a freshman and then my senior year in college. As many of you know, I became a Christian right around the age of 18, so I was a brand new Christian as a freshman in college on this small little campus in Michigan that at that time was not a very Christian campus at all. In fact, there were just a few of us who claimed the name of Christ in this campus of about a thousand people. And wouldn't you know that in God's sovereignty, the head of the religion section, they didn't have a Christian studies major at that time, but the religion department was an ordained Baptist minister who didn't really make it that well as a pastor because he didn't like pastoral care and people and things like that, which is like a real bummer if you're a pastor. But he really loved to teach. And so he went back and he got two PhDs and was teaching at this little college religion. But he was a, he was a Baptist minister. I mean, really solid in the Lord. And so I got kind of close to him. His name was Dr. Burke. And then these two other guys, only two other Christians I found, again, in my freshman class at college there. And I'll never forget one day I was walking across campus and I saw Dr. Burke and he said, how you doing, Jamie? I said, I'm doing great. He goes, how's your walk with God? I said, it's great. And he said, I tell you what, Jamie, I lead a Bible study once a week. You and your two buddies need to get in my Bible study. And I said, why? He said, you need to get in my Bible study because I'm telling you, life is hard. Life's filled with lots of things that are not necessarily in line with God's Word. And if you don't start to grow and learn in God's Word, you could be a spiritual casualty. He didn't use that phrase, but that's how I interpreted it, you know, in, in a few years from now. And I've seen it happen so many times. I remember walking away from that conversation with him going, how arrogant is that? I thought, what do you mean I need to get in your Bible study? I mean, it's me and God, pal, and I'm doing just fine. And I thought, I don't need to get in your Bible study. Neither do my two buddies. We're going to be just fine in the long haul, so leave me alone. And that was my mindset. I was really, you know, kind of a team player back then. And so uh, so that, that, that was my mindset. And, and I got involved in other Bible studies and got involved in a church and did other things, but I never joined his Bible study. Hey, isn't it fascinating? Three years later... The two guys that I was so close with, that walked so closely with God my freshman year, had both started to display lifestyle behaviors that were not commensurate with God's Word that I found out was stemming from a real confusion of who they were in Christ. And now, by my senior year, they weren't walking with God and they were even leading others down that same path. I I was blown away. I mean, what a paradigm shift for me as a young Christian to realize that people who were just like right with you in those early days, walking with God, doing what you were, went down a a different path. Why? 
Well, it all began with their belief systems. They changed and altered. And then it worked its way out in their behaviors. And then it eventually worked out in the influences that they have in their life. And that's the word I want you to remember here. You need to remember the word word, the word obedience, and then the word influence. And the question becomes, who or what is influencing you the most in your life? That's what I want you to wrestle with here. I mean, if you really want to beware of going down the wrong path and having a false teaching in your life, you've got to know God's Word. You've got to be an obedient follower of Christ. But then also, you have to worry about who is it that's really influencing you the most. I think Dr. Burke was right. I think Dr. Burke was right when he said to me that, that, Jamie, you need to have strong influences early on in your Christian walk, not exclusive influences, but strong ones, so that you don't go down this path that, that I've seen many go down. And so the question I ask for you is, what influences you the most in your worldview? How would you answer that? I mean, is it the latest New York Times best-selling novel? Or is it the Bible or some solid Christian book? Is it the views of CNN or Dateline, which can be good or bad? Or is it the truth that you hear preached from the pulpit or from preachers that you trust? Is it the latest or hottest action movie that influences your emotional makeup or the real-life action stories that God has preserved in His Word, the Bible? Who or what is influencing you the most? What do you think? What to believe? What to, what to do? It's a good question to ask. It's a good positive grid to funnel your life through. Because you see, folks, at the end of the day, if we're not really careful... It's definitely possible, and I don't mean to scare you, this is just real-life realities we need to deal with. It's definitely possible to end up at the fourth level of Peter's progression here that he lays out. It's definitely possible to become a spiritual casualty. It is. And I personally believe that this world, and even many within the church, have fallen into this. That our world and our church are filled with spiritual casualties. And that's Peter's whole point. That if we truly become deceived... If we listen and then act on false teaching in and around us, then the only result will be is to have a train wreck in our faith. And he pulls no punches. His language here is unmistakable. One last time, real quickly, look at the string of descriptors that Peter uses in describing the result of not being discerning in our spiritual lives. This should wake us up. He says they deny the master who bought them, that they're led to swift destruction, condemnation and destruction, punishment until the day of judgment, caught and destroyed, destroyed in their own destruction, it says there in verse 12, suffering wrong for their wrongdoing. They're called accursed children there in verse 14. I love this phrase. He says they're waterless springs, mists driven by the storm. Meditate on that one this week. Waterless springs, a good visual for the desert. Gloom of utter darkness reserved for them. Slaves of corruption, they're entangled. And then that famous phrase at the end there in verse 22, he says they're like a dog returning to its vomit and a sow after washing herself wallowing in the mire. A harsh language to be sure. Uh, But more than anything, just see this. What Peter's saying at the very least is that it's not a very good outcome for those who are spiritually deceived, right? That's what he's saying. I, I mean, get around some of the harsh language, and he's simply saying there that, you know what, for those who get deceived in their spiritual lives, who get off base as to who God is, what salvation is about, what sanctification and life is about, who fall outside of the boundaries of a right interpretation of His Word, he's saying, man, it's really difficult times for them. 
In fact, he's saying, quite frankly, it almost would have been better if they hadn't become Christians in the first place. He actually is insinuating that there, isn't he? He's saying it's almost worse to become a Christian and then to fall into such error than it would be just to remain where you were before. That's what he's saying here. And and folks, I I don't have all the answers that some of you ask when we have uh, passages like this. You know, some of you say, "Well, well, are they saved still? You know, well... It sure seems to insinuate that at least not the teachers, but those who fell prey to the teachers have definitely come into faith in Christ. And you know, there's different spiritual answers to whether or not they're still saved or not. Obviously, an Arminian would say, no, they've lost their salvation. A Maybe a strict five-point Calvinist would say, well, maybe at one time they thought they were saved, but they really weren't. Or maybe some would even apply some grace here and say, you know what? Yeah, it's possible to be saved and still fall into error. I mean, 1 Corinthians 3 seems to suggest that. Oh, there's different interpretations here. But let's not get too hung up on the salvation issue here. Let's just be men and women and own the fact that Paul or Peter is saying here that it's possible for us to fall into such error that our spiritual lives go downhill to the point that we have a train wreck and become spiritual casualties. And that should wake us up. If nothing else, that should just cause us to say, you know what, I don't want to be like that. So tell me again, Jamie, what it's about. The Word, obedience, influence. And give me another click here, Leah. And simply this, have a healthy fear of judgment. You know, we have time to go into it today. I mean, there's so much more in this chapter that we could go into. But but Peter actually uses five examples from the Old Testament. Some of you caught it. Examples like Balaam, Lot, Noah, the angels. And, uh, and, and he uses these as negative examples to show people who fell into judgment, all except for Lot there. He talks about people who fell into judgment as a result of being spiritually deceived. And again, this is not a hellfire brimstone thing, folks. What this simply is, is having a healthy fear in your spiritual life to say, I don't want to end up like that. I mean, you do that with your kids. Why can't God do it with you? I mean, your kid's running toward a cliff. You're going to say, oh, Johnny, you know, you don't want to go up that cliff. You know, no, you say, Johnny, get away from that cliff, right? You say, don't go running toward that cliff. You go toward that cliff, you're going to fall off and you're going to die, right? That's what you say if you're a good parent, right? And your kid never runs to a cliff again. And the reality is sometimes God does that with us. Sometimes God says, guess what? This is so harsh. This is so real. You don't want to go down this road. And he says, because there's going to be judgment at the other end. And judgment's not a good thing. And the reality is, is that for those of us who are spiritually aware, who take today's lesson to heart, we don't have a need to fear. Look one last time up here on the screen. Give me a click here, Leah. Thanks. If you, if you confront people who believe incorrect things, but you're a man or woman of the Word, you're going to be solid. If you sense in people who feel and act in wrong ways that they might believe incorrect things, but you're a person of obedience, you're going to be okay. If you see others lead others down the wrong path, but you say, you know what, the influences I'm going to have in my life are going to be good and godly influences, you're pretty protected. And if you meet those who are spiritual casualties, by all means, please pray for them, help them up. I mean, I've helped so many people over the years who have just made a mess of their spiritual lives. I mean, there's always hope. But learn from that. And say, you know what, I don't want to end up there. I don't want to be like that. I've got to believe God has something better for me. And so going back to our questions that we asked up front, it's one thing to be deceived day in and day out in little annoying things like wrong bathrooms and, you know, going down the wrong way on a one-way street or even people who don't come through in our lives. But it's a whole other thing to experience spiritual deception. But if you're a person of the Word and obedience and right influence and judgment, then you can rest pretty secure. 
in your walk with Almighty God. So the last question, what's it going to be for you? That's what each of us should be walking out with today. What's it going to be for you? After the second service, I'm going to go back and I'm going to record a little three-minute blurb for our website in which I'm helping people practically apply, you know, what we're talking about in the message here. And I won't give the whole spiel now because we don't have three more minutes, but just suffice it to say that I think today is the perfect kind of message for us to apply Monday through Saturday. Amen? Because you're going to watch things on TV. You're going to meet people at work. You're going to talk with your neighbor. And they're all well-meaning people, but they're going to say things that your spiritual antennas are going to go warning, warning, warning. And as you're a man of the Word or a woman of the Word, and as you're a person of obedience and a person of good influence and a person who has a healthy fear of judgment, guess what? Guess what? God is going to guide you in a good way. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that uh, Your Word once again comes through even in the passages that are very difficult for us to initially understand. And Father, it really is true that as the Scriptures say, or as Peter said of Paul, there are some things that he writes that are hard to understand, and and Peter did the same thing. And yet, Father, I thank You that uh, through Your Holy Spirit and through uh, the richness of Christians over the years who have written such wonderful things about the text, we we can understand what You're saying. So, Father, I pray for each one of us here that as we strive to be men and women of the Word, as we strive to be Christians that obey You, as we strive to be men and women who have good influences in our lives, and as we also have a healthy fear of judgment in our lives, God, I pray that You might add all this together and protect us from the influences around us. And, Father, may we be a good influence, Lord, as we've already established we need more and more followers of Jesus today that really have a positive, life-giving impact on those around them through our faith and through our love. God, may that be us. And may you continue to mature us and deepen us in our walk with you. Thanks for this church. Thanks for the blessings that you've given us here today. We go now in the matchless name of Jesus, in whose name you've taught us to pray. And we all say together, amen. Hey, God bless you. I'll see you next week.